0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. It's time to go against the grain for a couple of hours, starting off this Monday. And uh, hey, John, uh, it sort of felt like (laughs) like this weekend, uh, you know, did you want an update on COVID? Oh, yeah. okay. there's more news about that. Did you uh, (laughs) want, uh, you know, pretty see, you know, significant shift in the conflict in Ukraine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have something like that. Uh, do you want a major election? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Do you want like a wild political scandal and attack and response? <laughs> Tech new, Like there's just there's too much to get through today. We're going to try to get into it, but uh, we're going to try to get to these uh, drone attacks. On Russia's Black Sea Fleet and the state of the shipping deal. We've got the Brazil election. We've got an update on the attack on Paul Pelosi and the ongoing response to that. We've got Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. We've got a report from the uh, Department of Homeland Security showing just how much the surveillance agency heads there wanted. Uh, on people who had merely attended protests, right? Putting together oh, a dossier boy. on every single person who attended a protest in uh, in Portland. We've got the end of the honeymoon period for Joe Biden and Volodymyr Zelensky. We've got Liz Truss back in the news over her phone. Uh, in case that wasn't enough, you have this uh, awful human disaster in South Korea. I mean, yes, yes. There's an enormous amount to get through today, John. How are you? <laughs>
1: I'm okay. I uh, I flew to Israel on uh, on Saturday and um maybe I've psyched myself out or something, but I just simply cannot sleep on airplanes. Oh no. And so yeah, so I watched, you know, five movies, and um and when I got here, um I, I finally got to the hotel in the middle of the afternoon. It was about four uh, o'clock or four thirty. And uh, like you say, it was such a busy news weekend rather than just going to sleep and trying to adjust my schedule. I got right online and and tried to catch up with what was going on around the world. Mm -hmm. It was just one of those weekends.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, there was a lot, too, if you were trying to catch up on what's going on around the world. I mean, there's uh, it was too much is the answer. Um indeed, yeah, the other thing that was interesting and I actually I was sitting at a bar. I saw this and I wrote down notes and now I see that other people noticed noticed it, too. Did you have you seen anything about this new political ad uh, that came on during the World Series uh, basically an attack ad against Joe Biden? No, that I missed. I thought it was interesting because of how it concluded. Right. So it's an ad. It's your typical, like, scary scene. It flashes up something about uh, Joe Biden warning about nuclear apocalypse. Uh, It says 66 billion for Ukraine, you know, illegal immigration. Cities are a mess. uh, Stuff about, uh, you know, crime, all the terrible things that he's done. Yeah, 66 billion for Ukraine. I'm watching it now because the New York Post has a story on it. Weapons worth billions, nuclear Armageddon. And it ends with no moss. So like the fight. No mas. Right. No mas. No more. Right. It's it's by Citizens for Sanity. But this is no, no, it's it's trying to appeal. I mean, you could say it's a cheap shot against Biden, but it is obviously trying to appeal directly to Latino voters uh, in the United States. It's part of this uh, push. So I thought that—I mean, it caught my eye enough that I actually, like, wrote a little note to myself to it while I was sitting there in the bar oh, and wanted wow. to— I mean, right. this is the battleground, right? This is the sort of new yes. uh, demographic battleground. I think that's going to be yes, really interesting is. to watch. All right. I think yes, it is. Right. Because we have so much to get through, and we'll get a report from um, you on preparations for the election in Israel a little bit later, but— yep. Uh, I think we can just start right here with some updates from the conflict in Ukraine, uh, particularly uh, what is going on with that Black Sea grain deal. We're joined now by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Hi, Mark.
2: Michelle, John, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show.
0: There is a ton to catch up on uh, from this weekend. Most notably, Russia's Black Sea fleet suffered a drone attack on Saturday, uh, Russia says uh, I, I actually I saw nine drones, but then there was additional other stuff. So I won't try to recall just how many drones were involved. Yeah, but 16, 16, nine okay, aerial nine plus. And
2: seven, seven naval drones. Yeah.
0: And they also say that the ships that were targeted in the attack were a part of ensuring the functioning of this deal that was struck uh, between Turkey, Russia and Ukraine uh, to allow Ukrainian ga- grain to continue to pass through the Black Sea. So Russia announced it was going to pull out of the deal. Uh, it also is accusing the UK of being involved both in this drone attack and the uh, sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. So what's going on first w- with, this, with this attack on the Black Sea Fleet?
2: OK, so, yeah, early uh, in the morning uh, on Saturday, there was uh, uh, a, a pretty large drone attack uh, on the Black Sea Fleet uh, in the naval base at Sevastopol, uh, it included a, a number of aerial, um, and, uh, nine aerial and seven naval drones. Um, uh, all of the drones were, um, either shot down by air defense or, uh, taken out in uh, maritime actions by, by, uh, Russia's naval aviation and, uh, warships, uh, in the area. Uh, but Russia released, they had information, uh, that, This was uh, the preparation of this terrorist act training uh, of the Ukrainian 73rd Special Center for Maritime Operations carried out under the supervision of British Navy experts based in the city of Ochakov in the Ukraine's Nikolaev region. Um, And then they went on to say that they had intelligence that the same British naval personnel uh, were Uh, Behind the planning and implementation of the Nord Stream pipeline, the the detonation of the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, So the damage uh, was minor uh, to Russia's uh, naval fleet. It was one uh, minesweeper that was damaged, and, and that was essentially it. It it seems obvious to me that Russia had intelligence beforehand of this attack and let it happen under controlled conditions Mm. and is using that as uh, further justification for suspending the grain deal. And they released further details that actually the grain corridor itself, uh, the safe zone was used by these drones uh, uh, and, and one of them actually was released from a ship in that area. Um, so, um, Russia, you know, has good reason, uh, to suspend, uh, the grain corridor, but it already had problems with it because the West had not lived up to, uh, the deals that it had made, uh, to relieve the sanctions that affect, uh, Russian fertilizer and grain exports, Mm -hmm. uh, their own. Uh, so Russia was already not happy with this deal and was unlikely to renew it.
0: Right. Because, of course, it was set to expire anyway uh, on the 19th. Yes. So what is the (laughs) state of the deal now? Because I saw last night Turkey in the U.N. said uh, we've got 16 ships. They're going to be moving uh, through Turkish waters today. And the reports are they're sort of continuing to operate. And and what is unclear is how Russia will respond. So is that is that correct? What is going on right now in the Black Sea? Okay, so.
2: Yeah. Um, the Western media has made a lot. I mean, they they originally did out of a Russian blockade. Mm-hmm. There was never any blockade mm-hmm. by Russia and Russia made clear from the beginning that they were uh, willing to allow safe passage for Ukrainian uh, grain ships. And eventually that was reached with the grain deal formally. Uh, but as Russia didn't have a blockade, they haven't renewed it you know uh yeah. since they've pulled out of the deal but the question mainly is with insurers for the vessels uh and the cargo mm-hmm. are they going to insure vessels that no longer have a guarantee of russian per- uh, protection in what resort re- uh, reverts automatically to a de facto war zone mm-hmm. right which you know the black sea borders there certainly are uh so uh, the right now the ships that have passed through, we're already granted insurance. It's renewed uh, on a seven day uh, cycle. Uh, so, um, but uh, as of the last word that I have, as of today, they have suspended further insurance to these pending an assessment of the situation. Mm-hmm. So, it's not clear yet whether they will resume in the current form or not. Um, uh, And and a lot of it depends not so much on the countries involved, but uh, on the companies providing insurance for the ships moving through. Um, Russia actually has a lot of the same problem with the sanctions that Mm -hmm. are are leveled against them by the West. Insurance is a big deal when you're shipping oil or grain or anything across the ocean.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you think there's not going to at this point seems unlikely that A new deal will be struck after, uh, you know, either between now and when that expiration uh, date was set or afterward, Uh, because certainly Turkey seems very keen to continue to be either genuinely, you know, brokering uh, useful avenues of cooperation or at least appearing to.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see the, the grain deal being renewed. Uh, mm-hmm. Russia was already unha- – on that the West hadn't lived up to their terms of the deal that was brokered through Turkey uh, and the UN. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the grain will stop flowing because I also don't see Russia exerting naval action to, to, to block it. They right. didn't in the first place. I don't see they're going to do it now. So a lot of it will simply be on the heads – of the companies you know, providing the shipping and the insurance, mm-hmm. whether they want to take that risk in what reverts to uh, a war zone without any safety protection or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it won't be through active action by Russia. I don't see Russia uh, detonating grain ships in the Black Sea. They haven't, and I, I'm, I'm quite sure that they won't.
0: Right. Uh, how much does it mean that Russia is uh, pointing the finger at the UK for this attack and for that Nord Stream pipeline attack? I mean, as you described The accusation is that uh, the attack was conducted under the supervision of UK specialists. So, you know, are we still staying in behind this very fuzzy line of like what is direct involvement and and what isn't? How much how much of this should be? How much should we consider this an escalation, perhaps?
2: I I think Russia certainly considers it an, an escalation. These are two very serious incidents. It's not like they're just providing uh, weapons or intelligence in the battlefield. This is against the Black Sea Fleet, against the, these uh, billion-dollar pipelines. The UK is certainly still trying to hide, as the rest of the West, behind this figment of proxy war. But I think Russia regards itself at war with the United Kingdom, certainly at this point. And certainly the Russian media was full today of Comparisons of the Crimean War, where the United Kingdom and other imperialist powers uh, attacked, uh, put Sevastopol under siege and invaded Crimea in the 1850s. those is exactly the type of imagery that is, is being discussed in uh, Russia today. And it has to be said, uh, as of last night, uh, with the uh, Russian uh, uh, drone and cruise missile strikes, the facilities in Ochakov, uh, this uh, uh, Ukrainian port where uh, the British uh, uh, naval experts were uh, uh, directing, training, uh, you know, uh, supervising all of this with their Kiev proxies no longer exists. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask, I'm, I'm sure you've seen some of these reports uh, about uh, a new investigation finding that what do you know, weapons sent to Ukraine may have found their way to Finland, to the Netherlands, uh, to Denmark and Sweden. I mean, again, this is not barely even newsworthy because this was entirely predictable from the moment that these you know weapons began to be uh you know uh, flowing into this area. But I wondered if you had any thoughts on thoughts on these reports that the inevitable has begun to occur.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's actually been occurring for months mm-hmm. and, you know, we've already seen plenty of evidence, uh, online on, 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 on the dark side of the internet, if you will, uh, of these sales taking place and of jihadis, uh, in, uh, Syria and elsewhere in the middle, middle East, you know, proudly, uh, displaying the weapons they, they bought off of this. And we've seen previous reports from independent European NGOs of the amount of these weapons that disappeared to due, due to corruption, uh, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, these uh, most recent reports are just, you know, the the most recent evidence that can be not not be denied. But so it is simply ignored.
0: Yep, yep. Mark Slobod, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with woo, more of all the big news from the weekend. We're on Radio <laughs> Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to political misfits on Rate Gifts where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. I'm not in the studio, but I'm still here with my
0: with my colleague,
1: Michelle Whitty. I can hear you. Just eight you.
0: days. You can hear me? I can hear you if I can't see you.
1: Oh yes, you can hear me. Yes. That's the important thing. <laughs> Just eight days before midterm elections, social media is alight with allegations, conspiracies, and counter conspiracies over exactly what happened last week to Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul. You'll recall that an assailant apparently broke into the Pelosi home last week and beat Paul Pelosi with a hammer, causing a fractured skull and wounds to his hands and arms. Democrats were quick to blame Republican rhetoric for inspiring the alleged attacker. But Republicans struck back with unfounded accusations that the attacker was actually Paul Pelosi's gay lover, something that Elon Musk alluded to in a tweet that he then quickly deleted. The New York Times said today that polls show, and listen to how crazy this is, that the races for Senate will go down to the wire with a majority of Americans saying that they want a Republican Senate, but will likely vote to reelect their Democratic senator Because they like those senators individually. This is especially important in states like Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, Ohio, and New Hampshire that all have Senate races separated by just a few percentage points. (coughs) President Putin today hosted talks in Sochi between the presidents of Armenia and Azerbaijan to try to defuse renewed hostilities between those two countries. Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a brief war last year over borders – and the safety and security of minorities in each other's countries. NBC News reported earlier today that President Biden lost his temper in a June phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky after the Ukrainian asked for more military aid. Biden had <coughs> excuse me, Biden had just finished telling Zelensky that he would send an additional billion dollars in military aid when Zelensky began listing all of the additional things that he wanted. Biden reportedly shouted that Zelensky should begin showing some gratitude for what the American government had done for him. And the BBC reported today that former Prime Minister Liz Truss's cell phone may have been hacked while she was foreign secretary, exposing emails and text messages, including on Ukraine policy, to a foreign entity. The government said that it does not have any proof of a hack yet, but it has been aware of the allegations since summer. It just never said anything to the media. We are joined by author and journalist Daniel Lazar. He's going to help us sort all this out. Daniel, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. How's your cough? It is
0: worse than it's ever been. (laughs) Cough is doing great. John, not so great, but I'd say cough, cough winning for now. I told Michelle earlier today that
1: I have this uh, this breathing machine, this compressor, and my cough's been so bad I decided to bring it to Israel with me. And as soon as I plugged it in, it exploded. So yeah. I'm SOL for the next week. It was uh, obviously a Palestinian plot. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> the Israelis would certainly say so. Right. Listen, I, I promised myself that I would tune out these unsourced allegations about the attack on Paul Pelosi, but it seems that these conspiracy theories are everywhere, at least today and the last two days. That's not really the important issue, though. I think that'll likely burn itself out. The bigger question, though, is the blame game. The Democrats accused the Republicans of stoking an atmosphere of hate that led to this this attack, The Republicans blame the Pelosi's and say the Democrats are weak on crime and that their weak policies led to this attack. Do you think either side has a legitimate political issue here? Will there be any lasting effect on policy?
3: Yeah, I think there will, because I don't believe it really is a conspiracy theory at work here. I think there are two or possibly three loose threads that are not going to go away easily. That's the that's the whole problem. I mean, the both political Politico and the LA Times reported that when the police got there, the door was opened by an unidentified male. Number one, number two, um, on the the police uh, on a telephone call, according to a recording that is available on the internet, uh, Paul Pelosi identified his assailant by name. He said it was David. The Police added that he sounded highly confused, but nonetheless, he said someone named David was attacking him. Um, Thirdly, there's this strange story about how in the middle of this attack, uh, Paul Pelosi somehow excused himself to go to the bathroom where his cell phone was charging and apparently called the police. But I, I just don't quite understand how in the middle of an attack, you're able to go to the bathroom. Um, so these are three loose threads that aren't easy to reconcile with right. the, with the so-called official narrative. I mean, was there a second male in the apartment and the, uh, in the, in the home and who was that second male? What was he doing? Why didn't he call the police when the break-in occurred? Um, so right. these are so you no know, if you're it, it, you know if you're let's imagine you're a police reporter in some obscure beat right, right. and you're covering some 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 break in or some some home assault and you start hearing details like that the first thing you do is you you ask the detective or the chief of police he's like no oh, well you know what's going on with this how do you explain this why is the second man doing there um, and this is the kind of basic question that arises with regard to this narrative, and it just is not gonna go away. I mean, two two major outlets reported this, at least two. And so so what are we to make of that?
1: That is the $64,000 question right there. Turning to the election, Dan, <laughs> it's, it's really coming down to the wire, especially uh, in the Senate races. In the Pennsylvania race, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman won the endorsement today of the LA Times for what that's worth, and Mehmet Oz received the endorsement of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Races all over the country are likely to be cited by only a few percentage points, and we probably won't even know which party will control the Senate until days after the election. What do you make of this New York Times analysis that Americans in these swing states want a Republican Senate, but like their own Democratic senators? What does that mean for the election? Well, first of all, to me, it makes perfect sense um, because uh,
3: uh, there is not much by way of accountability in the U.S. Congress. I mean, people, Julia, yeah. have no idea how their senator votes and for because reporting is bad. Uh, there, you know, there isn't coverage of individual senators, and also senators have a thousand and one ways of hiding their various votes in the complicated legislative procedures that take place. Um, and you know, so so therefore, you know, you you voted for you know old Joe, who's been your senator for years and years, and and you like him; he's a nice guy, he's personable. as Of course, all these people right. are they're 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 great at this kind of thing. Um, and so, so you feel you feel warmly to old Joe, but um, by the same token, you're really pissed off with the way the country is going. <laughs> you can't stand the Democrats, so you wish Congress would, you wish the Republicans would would take control. So, bottom line is this situation that uh, that the Times describes. You know, I like old Joe, I hate the Democrats. You know, so I'll vote for old Joe, but still hope the the Republicans uh, take over Congress. It doesn't make much
1: sense, but the system doesn't make much sense. And if you look, if you look back over the years, too, I mean, people have written their PhD dissertations on this thing. A lot of people genuinely like their representatives and hate everybody else, right? That's why Congress has a 19 percent approval rating, but a reelection rate of, you know, well over 90 percent. Yeah, it's always, you know, it's the other guy.
3: Yeah, it's very funny. Uh, But this is the um, this is the way the American system works. I mean, there's there really is close to zero accountability. I mean, I mean, I must say, you know, watching the uh, the British Parliament in action over Liz Truss, I mean, there was you know, there was no question as to accountability. I mean, she was responsible for everything that had gone wrong. She had to answer uh, for that. She was grilled. Ah, uh, you know, on the spot, it was merciless, and you know, and 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 there was no way out. Uh, but as you know, the American system uh, provides a thousand ways ways out, so you have this yes. strange paradox where everyone hates Congress but keeps re-electing their their congressmen over and over again.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. President Putin, in the midst of steering his country through an armed conflict took the time today to try to defuse another potential armed conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. These countries fought a short but brutal war last year, hundreds of people dead. That was over the area of Nagorno-Karabakh. Why do you think this meeting took place today? Is trouble, is trouble brewing again? Uh, I don't have
3: any insight. I presume it is brewing again because things are hanging by a thread there uh and i think that uh that putin is extremely worried about losing control of central asia uh and this this caspian region uh is part of central asia broadly speaking um yeah. and uh and so I, I think he's very worried about losing control there he's very worried about inroads being made by the united states so he's he. He has to take time out from his busy schedule <laughs> running, yeah running this you know, yeah. the this, this special military operation, which is you know could very well destroy his government. He's got to take time out to uh, to try to attend to this problem and try to keep it, you know, keep it from from boiling over yet again. I, I don't think he'll be successful because I think this war is going to intensify.
1: See, that's what's so surprising to me because last year, the Armenians got their butts kicked in just a matter of of what a week or two weeks, and if if that didn't teach them a lesson about about the inviolability of borders, I, I don't know what would. Like, why would they, knowing what happened a year ago, why would they want to go back to battle? knowing that the chances of winning are practically nil and that the, and that the Russians are opposed to a resurgence in fighting.
3: I'm not sure it's the Armenians. I think it's very, well, maybe the, uh, the, the, uh, Azerbaijanis, uh, the, the the Azerbaijanis, you know, that you have this, it all goes back to Soviet national policy, national policy. And these, these, these national boundaries, uh, under the Soviet Union, were not drawn for the purpose for the purpose of defensibility. They were drawn in order to, like you know, sort of like you know, bring in uh, uh, national minorities. So they so they bring all minorities into one or another national unit. Uh, so so there there's there are two enclaves here. There's a there's an Azerbaijani enclave to the West of Armenia, and there's an Armenian enclave in Nagorno Karabakh that is yep. to that is to the east, um, surrounded by Azerbaijan. Those enclaves are really difficult to depend. They 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 make perfect sense back when these these. Countries, these three nations were part of the Soviet Union. They make no sense now that they're independent. They're militarily indefensible. Um, each, both, either side regards them as somehow, somehow provocative by their very nature, uh, and they are taking steps to to eliminate, to, to combine them in the larger unit. And it seems that Azerbaijan, I, I mean, as far as I can tell, it's been much more aggressive in this regard. It wants to essentially um, uh, uh, take over a slice of, uh, of Armenia, yeah. number one, so that that, that so that it's united with its enclave, and number two, so that Armenia has no border with Iran, its major ally, paradoxically, um, even though uh, Armenia is a Christian country and Iran, of course, is, is Muslim. Um, so that apparently is the Azerbaijan strategy. It's backed by Turkey, you know, which is, has a lot of international influence. Uh, mm-hmm. The U.S., as far as I can tell, has been, has been ambivalent. Uh, and so, uh, so I think the war is going to resume. Uh, And I I think that it'll more likely be uh, Azerbaijan, which takes the initiative.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting analysis. And frankly, it's a point that I hadn't considered. Hey, there have been rumors in Washington for a long time now that Volodymyr Zelensky is ungrateful for the military aid that Ukraine has received from the United States. The report that we saw today from NBC News quoted four people— who they said were, quote, familiar, unquote, with the call that Zelensky had with Biden. This is clearly an authorized leak. But well, the question is, why leak it now? Is it because of Republican pressure over Ukraine? Is this to show that Biden can be tough with the Ukrainians? I, I, I assume it's the latter. I, I, I mean, I, I, I assume
3: for number one, first of all, Joe Biden is a testy old man. You know, he's always getting yeah. in arguments. Uh, he's just uh, he just he just loses his temper easily. His age is showing he has little by way of self-control. You know, what did he do? He wants challenged some guy on the on the campaign trail to a push-up contest and threatened physical violence against another guy cuz he asked an impertinent question so you know he's always blowing up he's very testy but i assume that they did it that it was released now to show that biden's a tough guy he's not giving zelensky a blank check to the contrary, right. he's he's yelling yelling at him for demanding too much, uh, and therefore Republican complaints about a blank check are are unwarranted. Okay, moving <laughs> on because <laughs> there's the so I, much. That's the best I can do, John. I, I
1: don't I don't have any special insight, but that's what I assume no, but that's is okay going because on here. You know what? I I've I've been in Washington so long that I tend to get into a certain mindset, and I think that I that I understand you know the multiple sides of different issues and i realize after talking to people like you that there are angles that i haven't considered so even though you're not in the white house even though you you don't have the security clearance you know from the nsc that would have allowed you to listen in on this phone call just getting your your analysis is important to me so let's talk about liz truss for a second the woman can't seem to stay out of trouble. Now we hear that her phone may have been hacked while she was foreign secretary. Now, interesting to me is that the press is using the term hacked rather than intercepted. What do you think we should make of this, if anything? We don't even know if it's true, but if it is true, what kind of damage to the UK government do you think we're talking about here? Okay, so there are a lot of ifs there. Mm. Um, Yeah. uh, 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 if it's
3: true, um, if it's hacked rather than intercepted, if they you know if you attach any significance to those you know to the to that verb. Uh, right. uh, i I would say that it, it it invites a possibility a third party uh, was involved uh, an amateur. Who somehow was able to intercept the phone call and maybe pass the information on to the Russians? We don't really know. This is purely speculation. Um, uh, as to the damage that was done, I think that'd be very useful to the Russians to have a, a have a a you know to be have inside information. As to what the British right. foreign, foreign office is up to, the British, you know, are very, you know, they're they're closely a lot of Americans are they're, they're they're partners with the Americans. They right. have a real insight as to what's happening in the Zelensky government, what the real military situation is, uh, whether it differs from the official, you know, pronouncements that are that are issued. Um uh so I think it'd be really helpful if I was, you know, in the Kremlin to have this information. Uh you know and I I, I wouldn't necessarily blame it on Liz Truss. I mean, you know, I poor yeah. Liz has gotten No, I has gotten, I totally has gotten, agree. Her, has gotten her share of abuse in in recent weeks. Uh but you know but but it's if 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 the reports are true then conceivably they got some
1: really important stuff. Yeah, I I would agree. Um, the Supreme Court today is hearing arguments that could lead to the overturn of affirmative action, something that has been the law of the land since the, uh, what, the, the late 1970s. Several states already have overturned affirmative action, like California, for example. California universities do not use affirmative action in, uh, in um, applications or in the application process. In the event that the conservative majority on the court does overturn the status quo, what do you think that means more broadly for the country? Are we beyond the point now where affirmative action helps the people who who need it most? Affirmative action is a is a nightmare. First of all, you call it the law of the
3: land. There has never been a single act of Congress, you know, correct, putting putting in place affirmative action. Congress correct, has, it's fifty has, state laws. 50 state laws, myriad bureaucratic regula- uh, regulations, a uh, 1,001 judicial rulings, uh, and, you know if not in defense of those regulations and refusing to interfere with those regulations, et cetera, et cetera. It, but it really is a stealth policy. It's a policy that, 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 that congressmen can say, well, it wasn't my fault because I never voted for it. You know, every last one of them can say it. Um, right. It, it, it's 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 it, it's a complete nightmare uh, i mean you know you know the free market conservative economist, economists you know they 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 have they have produced such garbage but in the 70s they actually did some good work you know picking apart Nonsensical federal regulations and air, airline regulations, for example, that was some some very famous work, and and this is an example of a really bad economic regulation. It doesn't benefit the poorest and the most oppressed. It benefits yeah, the people of the right. middle class who are best positioned to take advantage of this. Um, so, you know, so so, uh, you know, it, it it puts, you know, it puts an emphasis on skin color so that, you know, African immigrants, Caribbeans, Caribbean blacks are well positioned to take advantage of it. And, I'm you know, I, I don't want to run those people down at all because they're hardworking strivers, you know, who want to get ahead and, and can't be blamed for for taking, you know, for seizing an opportunity when it presents themselves, but mm-hmm. the poorest, the poorest of the poor, do not benefit from this. And in fact, one thing we see is that economic polarization among Black people is actually greater. Black Americans is actually greater than Americans as a whole, and and the the, the bottom third of the African American population has been doing terribly. Never more so than since 2000 or 2008 or 2020 in addition. So these policies are not reaching them. Um, yeah. And meanwhile, it has c- created this, this kind of this, this culture in academia, which is completely out of control. I mean, I remember, there was a, I remember several years ago, there was a vote on the Stanford faculty on affirmative action, and the resolution in support of affirmative action was passed unanimously. The Stanford faculty will never agree unanimously on anything else under the sun, including the time of day. These are hundreds of the most argumentative people on the face of the earth. How is it that there is this culture of uniformity uh, on, on this question in academia to the point where Anybody, any young grad student who criticizes this policy will actually find his career terminated on the spot. Mm. I've, I've heard this from num- – I'm not an academic myself, but I've heard this numerous times, and I believe it to be true. So, so we have a policy which, you know, in a classic case of a badly designed economic regulation, is not doing what it's supposed to do. And in the process is created all kinds of, you know, of unwanted blowback. Um, and so that's not a good thing, right? I mean, that's a, that's a policy which is like asking to be terminated. And I'm, I have no doubt the Supreme Court following up on its ruling uh, on, on Roe will do the same thing with regard to this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Finally, Dan, I want to ask you about this uh, Senate report. It's it's actually a Republican Senate report. The Democrats did not participate on the likely origin of COVID having been a, a lab leak. Um, they didn't offer up anything more than what we've already seen. But this seems to be the the general consensus now that this was a, a lab leak. What does this report mean for um for COVID policy going forward well now
3: after coming off like a conspiratorialist with
1: regard to the paul pelosi incident
3: <laughs> let me let me uh, let me strike an anti-conspiratorial note here uh in that the the this the republican report was not very convincing and we still really don't know the answer i mean i, I mean i think right. it was i think it was more likely the the uh the market not the lab um but you know, I can't rule out the 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 lab. And by the way, it's important to emphasize that even if the lab was the origin, it does not mean the virus was created in the lab. Mm-hmm. Right. It means that it, it, it could it more likely mean the lab was studying the virus, and the virus then escaped. Yes. Um, yes. But, uh, but um so therefore, it doesn't mean it's like this 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 red Chinese conspiracy to destroy the world. Some doctor evil conspiracy um so uh but but i really think the report was not persuasive that the the um that the jury is still out uh, we we just can't say definitively definitively where it originated.
0: Hey Dan, speaking of uh, Paul Pelosi and conspiracies, I wanted to ask. I mean, I don't know what to. Th- I find it plausible actually that if a if a crazy person is attacking you, that they do crazy things, and maybe Paul Pelosi could wander over and get to his phone and text or whatever. Um, call call nine one one. I agree. I don't know who this third person in the house is. It would you know it's going to be hard for some yeah. media to let that go uh the appearance of zip ties is is you know the zip ties is like a little uh it's become a little I don't know it's, it they're everywhere right zip ties are the scary new thing that yes. people carry around but you know that being said i also wonder uh, you know i do wonder if there is a difference between the way uh republicans and democrats or republicans and uh, followers and democratic followers uh talk about and criticize their opponents right and if it is does seem to be true that there is a there is a sort of uh, fringe of the Republican Party that really, you know, like really makes it personal. Right. Nancy Pelosi personally is bad, is personally going to be abusing children, is personally going to be doing this or that sort of vaguely uh, occult crime. And I do wonder if. You know, if there is a difference in in the way these attacks are lodged, and if that is going to lead toward uh, something like personal vi- violence or ex- exacerbate it, right, from one side uh, rather than the other. Well, you know,
3: but the, but the Democrats do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, they're, 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 their attitude towards towards uh, Donald Trump and you know couldn't be more personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it, you know, it's, it really it really seems that if somehow you know Donald Trump vanished from the from the earth, then uh, you know, then 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 the clouds would part. A beautiful rainbow would descend, <laughs> coast to coast. The lion would lay down with the lamb, mm. and uh, and and all the many problems besetting America would vanish. Mm. But you know, so so both sides are both sides personalize this problem to the nth degree, and I do think the New York Times, you know, it, it has a piece today, you know, attacking a. Uh, Elon Musk for this tweet. He said that there there may be more to the story, um, uh, and the New York Times is very censorious. It says, you know, he sort of accuses him and the new Twitter of of engaging in dangerous rhetoric. Well, I think the Times is may very well find itself embarrassed by ignoring these loose threads in the Paul Pelosi story, just as it was embarrassed by the by the Hunter Biden story. Mm-hmm. Where for like what was it twelve months? The official New York Times line was that the you know was that the, yeah the uh, the, 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 the uh, laptops were Russian plants, mm-hmm. and then it's been a casually admitted two thirds of the way down the story. Well, you know uh, FBI investigators are now taking the the the, the, the laptop seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're gonna, they're going to find themselves in a similar situation because that second that 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 third man who answered the door. I don't know. How you can make that detail go away, yeah. and and that single detail disrupts the entire narrative.
0: Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I was just just curious. Dan Lazar, always (laughs) great to talk to you. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. We've got so much to get into. We're going to skip this next break because I know we have our next guest on the line to talk to us about the election in Brazil. Uh, The leftist candidate won in Brazil's very important presidential election this weekend by a very slim margin. Uh, Last Mm -hmm. night, with 99.98% of the vote counted, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva had taken 50.9% of the votes, while incumbent Jair Bolsonaro had 49.1%. Bolsonaro as of a couple hours ago, uh, had yet to say anything about the result. And I only saw actually that a few hours ago, uh, he, he seems to have left the presidential residence. Uh, and so now to talk about what the victory means, what's ahead for Lula and whether Bolsonaro's supporters will actually accept it. We are joined by journalist at Brazil Wire, Natalia Urban. Natalia, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having me. It's a great day for Brazilians like me. Yeah, congratulations. Um, But,
0: man, like less than one points or sorry, less than two points, fewer than two points between uh, Bolsonaro and Lula. It is interesting that, you know, the, the polls... Lula was leading in the polls all throughout this campaign, but Bolsonaro uh, consistently performed much better than he was expected to. So what what should that tell us?
4: Um, it's very concerning because we have to be very honest and say that we have um, a large percentage of Brazilians who are extremely radicalized, who are following a rhetoric of Hatred of uh, division and, of course, of anti communist propaganda. Mm. Because uh, in Latin America, same as in other places, everything that they, they don't like, the far right don't like, they say it's communism. So, um, diversity is communism, uh, racial equality is communism, uh, welfare state is communism. So, uh, we have that type of like uh, uh, ignorance uh, around brazilian politics as well and it's also very important to notice that this was uh, also we have to blame the media for never had the the accountability the mainstream media for letting mm-hmm. someone like bolsonaro to be normalized for a long time mm-hmm. it took that it took them not just in brazil but in the, the international media as well Years of Bolsonaro destructing the uh, uh, the environment, uh, destructing uh, um, the political institutions, mm-hmm. fomenting uh, uh, hate, for them to realize that well, maybe we shouldn't have said that he was a refreshing news for politics. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's not a nice guy. <laughs> maybe he's not respectful. Well, maybe he's a fash.
0: Yeah. Uh, also, you know, talk to us about these reports of voter repression during the election, especially these actions uh, by the federal highway pat- police. There were stories of highway police uh, stopping cars with Lula stickers on them, of creating roadblocks in uh, Lula-heavy voting areas, and otherwise attempting to interpe- interfere with the vote. And a Brazilian Supreme Court justice even stepped in to issue an order to the head of the police department, saying. Prove you're not stopping people on the way to the polls. At least this is according to reports I've seen. So, what what can you tell us about what happened?
4: Um, not just that, but we also had in cities where they have like uh, mayors or even like states where they have like governors who were supporters of Bolsonaro uh, um, a, a disrespect of the Brazilian law that guarantees everybody. Uh, free transport on election day, cutting transports on the election day. Um, this was uh, also a case uh, around indigenous communities, especially one in Mato Grosso do Sul, which would be the center of Brazil, where uh indigenous community of over 3,000 people were not able to vote because. Uh, the mayor of the closest town refused to send them transports. So... Mm Uh, Knowing that indigenous people in Brazil uh, historically vote for Lula and were campaigning for Lula, of course, the mayor, a self-proclaimed bolsonarista, was an interest in support, which was the same case of the director of the Federal Highway Police. Mm. Uh, He was someone that openly said he was supporting Bolsonaro. He was someone that was openly uh, uh, said that uh, was willing to do whatever it takes to support Bolsonaro and the plane, according to uh, journalists from the mainstream media that always was against Lula. So it wasn't like a biased media or anything, mm-hmm. uh, discovered that the order from uh, doing those roadblocks in the states where historically Lula would have. A, a bigger voting, uh, margin, uh, to, it came from the Bolsonaro his, himself from the presidency. Mm. So, um, the, the amount of, uh, the numbers of voting, uh, abstentions in the States where, uh, those operations happen were much larger than the older history of like voting, which shows that many people wouldn't actually be were able to go to voting because even after uh, the order, people from the Workers Party tried to ask for an extension of the voting time for people who were not able to reach out their voting places would be able to go after, and he refused it. The um, electoral court refused it, saying, "Well, no, there is plenty of time." But actually, there wasn't plenty of time and many people were not able to vote, especially those living in the far of the countryside of Northeast. Mm -hmm. And now uh, we are seeing that even with those attempts, well, it was actually voting suppression was not an attempt of vote suppression because people were not allowed to vote, um, Lula still won with uh, not a big margin, but he still won. And the margin would be even bigger if we had Lula, uh, if those people were able to attend their voting places. Mm-hmm. And, you know,
0: it's the kind of margin that you might have expected Bolsonaro to challenge. But he doesn't, from what I could see this morning, he, he's he been silent, but he doesn't necessarily appear to be uh, saying that the vote was rigged or something. So what what have we heard from Bolsonaro?
4: Nothing. Bolsonaro is uh, incommunicado, he's refused to talk even with his allies, he's not receiving his ministers, he's just shut down on the governmental palace for over 12 hours. Mm -hmm. No one knows, he left the palace this morning, but he was in a presidential car, no one heard of him, Mm -hmm. no one talked to him. Uh, his supporters were in front of the governmental palace and were asking for him and he did not say hello, which he usually would go there mm-hmm. and he still did not, uh, concede. So it is, we, we actually don't know what he's planning or what he's trying to do right now, mm-hmm. but, uh, Based on how he react when Trump lost the election in the United States, I would say that it's going to take him some time uh, for uh, uh, concede that he lost the election. Mm
0: -hmm. And also, you know, I mean, Lula has won. Uh, but Bolsonaro's party still has the most seats in Congress. Uh, right wing governors are still at the helm of, of some major Brazilian states. And again, considering this margin of victory for Lula, it seems like, you know, this is only the beginning of of some very difficult political work. And so I wonder if you could talk about just how much power Lula will have when he takes office in, in January and how much she realistically is going to be able to achieve in this environment.
4: Well, um. Bolsonaro party, um, well, it's a new part. His new party in the 2018 election was the same thing with the other party he was a member because Bolsonaro is not uh, faithful to anyone or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, the people who are with him are also extremely dodgy characters that would jump the ship uh, Mm -hmm. as soon as as he's not in power again. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would probably vote with the Sentry, which, like we call in Brazil, the Centrão, which are the ones who actually call the shots in congress but we also had a record of uh, parliamentaries from the workers party elected we also have a lot of like new people with more uh, radical ideas elected as well so i would say that even though it's not the ideal situation we also have a lot of support for lula in congress and also Uh, with the popular movements who are feeling extremely empowered right now, especially Mm -hmm. after the winning.
0: And what about also the support that Lula might be getting uh, from his neighbors, right? Because this is a, you know, a a last big piece in in a pink tide in Latin America. How much is that going to mean for him and how much is his victory going to mean for Latin America?
4: Well, uh lula's victory uh, i had never saw someone had been congratulated so fast by all the neighboring leaders Mm -hmm. and it wasn't like um a regular congratulations a diplomatic note where Mm -hmm. like you could see people were like truly happy because he's one of the still alive political biggest political figures of the left in latin america he's someone who dedicated a great portion of his political life for the integration of latin america and today even though lula won the election yesterday Today, Lula was receiving the visit of Alberto Fernandez from Argentina, mm-hmm. which, according to Lula, will be the first country he will visit uh, soon after he take office. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing that people like Evo Morales, uh, people like uh, um, Gustavo Petro, Nicolas Maduro, everybody is excited because they know that, even though they might disagree and a few topics or even like in lots of topics Lula really wants what's best for Latin America. He really really wants integration and he's a very uh someone who has dedicated and proved that he's a true anti-imperialist. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we only have 1 minute left, but I did want to ask what is the deal with uh, Bolsonaro's wife voting in the t-shirt that says Israel? <laughs> what was that about?
4: Well, um we all know that Bolsonaro um, um, cater for the uh, fundamentalist evangelical in Brazil who have mm-hmm. a very um, pro-Zionist views about uh, Israel and especially with the issue with Palestine. Bolsonaro tried to follow Trump regarding changing uh, the Brazilian embassy to Jerusalem um, and. We are seeing that maybe I would say that that was an attempt to, again, not just show that he was being uh, supportive of the evangelicals. But also we have to remember that one of the few leaders, because Lula had like uh, a big support for the international community and Bolsonaro had like you know Trump and a few congressmen here and there and Benjamin Netanyahu, who... Uh, was someone who recorded videos in support of Bolsonaro. Mm -hmm. So Bolsonaro was trying to uh, call up on the votes of the Zionists.
0: I mean, that's wild. Natalia Urban, thank you so much for joining us. Where should our listeners go to find more of your work?
4: Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Urban Natalia. Uh, You can find me on Brazil Wire as well. Although now we're going to take a break for a while because we have been working nonstop for eight years. And we deserve that break. (laughs) And also you can find me uh, on a lot of like outlets because now it's a time uh, that we have to start. Like uh, Lula said yesterday, Brazil is back. So it's time to show the world that we are back again. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you so much for your time again, Natalia Urban. Take care. We're going to take a quick break here on political misfits and come back to talk about, uh, man, so, so many stories that we're still working through. Prison conditions, (laughs) fentanyl in the mail, uh, DHS surveillance, what's going on at Twitter, all of that. Uh, We're Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. John, you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yep, sure can. Great. Great. Yeah, Um. we... Uh
1: we told you last week that a Russian appeals court upheld a nine-year sentence for Brittany Greiner. We also mentioned that the U.S. media, almost all of it, went on to say that Greiner was, will serve her sentence in a Russian penal colony and that the penal colony system was a descendant of the gulags. They added that Russian prisons are violent, that health care there is substandard, and that Greiner will be forced to work for little or no money. But apparently, without knowing it, the U.S. media described the American political system. Violence in every prison and jail in America is a daily fact of life. Suicides are rampant. Health care is scandalously bad. And the 13th Amendment to the Constitution permits slavery in the penal system. The American prison system is no better than the Russian system or any other Western penal system. We're joined by Paul Wright. Paul is the managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News Magazines and executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks. I have to admit, Paul, that reading reports on Brittany Greiner's anticipated prison conditions kind of made me angry. It was apparent to me that literally no journalists who wrote about her had ever spent A single hour in an American prison. So let's start with the issue of violence. We've spoken before, you and I, um, about violence at Rikers Island and violence at prisons, for example, in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. But can you give us a broader view? Tell us about levels of violence in American prisons. And what about suicide rates, especially now in the immediate aftermath of COVID?
5: Oh, just, just some of the stories that we've been reporting on, like recently, um, I think Georgia's, ru- Georgia's running uh, over 30 or 40 homicides in the past two years. Um, Alabama, we can't. Up-
0: Definitely losing, having Paul go in and out. I think maybe this is a issue of Skype dropping or something. Paul, right? are you there?
5: Yes, I'm here. I can hear you. Is this a little bit better? Okay. No, I was going to say is that you, we've been reporting pretty consistently about. Um, you know, high levels of violence in Alabama with prisoners, one to two prisoners a week being murdered in Alabama prisons. In Georgia, there are over 30 or 40 prisoners that have been murdered in the last um, two years. And I think that Hollywood has made uh, violence and, and death in prison seem commonplace, but I'd say anyone that is familiar with um, modern penology should tell you that deaths in prisons and jails should be the exception and not the norm or the rule. That's right. The fact that they happen at all is is a sign of a dysfunctional and poorly run
1: system. That is absolutely right. Uh, There was a piece in the the New York media, WNYC, that came out a couple of days ago, Paul, saying that because Rikers Island um, receives so many drugs embedded in the mail, uh, that prisoners just simply are not going to be allowed to receive mail anymore. Um, what do you make of this? I mean, it's not like drugs in prisons are or something new, but banning all mail. I know that, that the human rights defense center has gone to court many times over the issue of mail. What can you tell us?
6: Well, I think
5: that this has nothing to do with drugs in the mail, but this is the fact that we now have companies that are intent upon monetizing. Um, that are now intent upon monetizing uh, how mail is delivered. And, They're basically offering to scan in and deliver mail electronically to prisons and jails all over the country. and Basically, it's it's just a money grab, um, which has not come as any surprise to our listeners. But this has less to do uh, with drugs coming in through the mail, which is um, a very, very minute um, percentage. Um, As we've discussed on the show, you know, the number one source of contraband in prisons and jails, including uh, drugs entering... Uh, is through the staff. It's not through the mail. It's not through visitors. Um, it's not through
1: packages. It, it's brought in by corrupt staff. And this is going to change that. Michelle had a question. We were talking about this earlier today about uh, fentanyl, right? You w- when I was in prison, the cops were worried about uh, LSD underneath stamps or or in the uh, the sealant on envelopes. Now it's about Fentanyl. We know that the guards are the source of most of the contraband coming into um, American prisons. Is that the case also for fentanyl? Is this is this a problem that's bigger than the problem that other drugs uh, have been? You know, I, I think it just goes,
5: it's just the drug de jour. I mean, the LSD, I mean, I spent 17 years in prison, and I'll just say hallucinogenics are not a popular drug in American prisons. The number one drugs that are popular in prisons tend to be uh, the downers, like heroin and barbiturates. So I can see fentanyl fitting right in mm. and being one of the popular um, drugs. So basically, a lot of prisoners just want to literally sleep their sentences away. And when you consider the fact that probably anywhere between 50 and 70% of uh prisoners have been diagnosed with substance abuse disorders, um it kind of makes sense that this is what they want. You lock up a bunch of people with uh substance abuse issues, um, that's probably gonna be a big part of what they want or are interested in. And fentanyl just kind of fits in there, but uh, as far as like the death rates and overdoses in that, like a spike or anything like that around fentanyl, probably one of the biggest um popular Um, drugs in probably the last five years has been Suboxone, which ironically is a drug used to treat drug addiction, um, much like methadone is. And and that's been a drug that's been popular um, in recent years. But but I think that's one of the things is just the fact that, in, in a lot of respects, this is America's failed war on drugs, is that one of the things that American prison and jail officials have done across the country in the last thirty or forty years is they dramatically eliminated and reduced the number of drug treatment and drug abuse um, treatment programs in prisons or jails so fifty to seventy percent of your prison population is diagnosed with a substance abuse disorder, so what do you do? You eliminate the uh, the classes of the programs that treat substance abuse disorders, and then you're surprised that um, you're uh, caged um, uh, drug users or drug addicts still want to continue using drugs. Um, but but in, in a lot of respects I think this almost typifies or exemplifies the whole war on drugs that this country has been pursuing uh, for the last fifty years. Or I should say the war on poor drug users.
1: Yeah, it's been a it's been a, a failure, patently. Um Another failure has been in medical care. Now, we've spoken to you many, many times about Horizon, about Geo Group, or whatever they're calling themselves this week, and other prison health care uh, providers, and how they are fined every year tens of millions of dollars for providing substandard medical care in prisons. People die because they can't get decent health care in prison. Has that changed in any way? What's the state of prison health care right now? It's abysmal if anything it's gotten worse
5: and continues to get worse i mean the uh privatized i want i want to know growing but they're holding steady in terms of their quote market share unquote um but you know the it's it's just a it's just a very they have a very straightforward business plan which is you charge the government as much as possible uh for medical care and then you deliver as little medical care as possible it's basically your standard hmo um medical so- or business model on steroids. And the difference is that the people locked in cages don't have the option of seeking other medical care. They can't go to the emergency room. They can't get a second opinion. They're literally locked into a life or death uh, medical situation created by the government, and they don't have any options. And um, the companies that are contract do this have every incentive possible to deliver as little as little medical care as possible, and sadly, the government-run uh, prison and jail medical systems aren't much better. They're still under the same constraints of you know cutting costs and and things like that. The difference is when uh, government doctors um, kill their patients for lack of care, they don't get bonuses at the end of the year like their private like their
1: privately run for-profit counterparts do. Yeah, that's, to me, that's one of the worst parts of our prison system. You're right that the only way these these companies make money is to not treat prisoners. It's to not provide medication uh, to prisoners. It's no secret also that the Constitution allows modern-day slavery in the prison system. Again, we've spoken at length about prisoners across the country making pennies an hour for hard labor. In the state of California, it's prisoners mostly that fight these wildfires. We had chain gangs in the United United States until as recently as 1996. Now five states have measures on the ballot to ban forced prison labor. Do you think this is an anomaly or do you think it's a trend? Where do you think it's going?
5: Well, I'm hoping it's a trend because I can say this. As someone who's been doing this work for over 30 years now – um, when we started Prison Legal News in uh, in nineteen in nineteen ninety, two of our big things at the time, uh, which you know we've still hewed to, were you know ending prison slavery and enfranchising prisoners to be able to vote. And I'd say we're in a position now where, um, well, in nineteen ninety, uh, both of those were viewed as, as hopeless pipe dreams. Um, I had people literally tell me I was crazy that you know we're never going to see. Prisoners not be enslaved, and that the idea of uh, of felons, much less prisoners, voting, was um, you know beyond crazy. And here we are. I mean, slow progress has been made, but I'd say that just the fact that stuff is on the ballot now, um, you know, thirty two years later, I think that's progress. And and I think that one of the things that the, the times are changing. And I think that, but but it's interesting though, is that none of this, or very little of this, is coming from politicians and the political class. It's not politicians saying, hey, prison slavery and forced labor is wrong. Um, it, it's coming through ballot initiatives and it's coming through the, the popular will. Whether or not it passes, I don't know. But, um, but again, I, I think it's one of those things where it gives people the option of saying, yes, I support slavery or no, I don't. And, but the political class as a whole, is they're definitely down with slavery. And this is a chance to try and, you know, move past that um you know, that barbaric relic of you know of American history of chattel slavery. And and I think that's one of those things where it's funny that a lot of people think the thirteenth Amendment abolished slavery, but in fact perpetuated it and just limited it to people that have been convicted of a crime. And as we've seen with you know, the US cranks out a million felons every year and with two and a half million people locked in cages, it's easy to, you know, create a slave class.
1: Oh, you bet. Uh, And speaking of criminal justice reform, it's a major campaign issue this cycle, but not in the way that that you and I have been talking. It's trending heavily in the tough-on-crime direction. This is an issue in the New York governor's race, as well as races for the House and the Senate all across the country. No-bail policies appear to have failed Uh, What happens next? Should we expect a backlash a week from tomorrow? Um,
5: I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, through the 1990s, I mean, every is like Democrats and um, Republicans were, you know, try to outdo each other who could be, quote, toughest on crime. And, I mean, that's how they managed to double our prison population from a million prisoners in 1990 to 2 million 10 years later in uh, in the year 2000. And well, we haven't still really done any of that. So I think so far, uh, you know, the vast majority of the very modest reforms that we've seen in the last five or six years um, have just been just that, very modest. They haven't really... Uh, they haven't dramatically affected or impacted the numbers of prisoners. They haven't impacted prisoner jail budgets. Um, they haven't really had a, a huge effect. And so the fact that even such modest reforms are engendering this type of backlash, I, I think, just goes to show how wedded the political class in this country is, to the police state, and, you know, and, and building and kind of fortifying the police state at all costs. And, and part of the thing is that we don't have any type of what I would call a rational discussion about what public safety actually looks like or what we should aspire to in terms of public safety because I think the reality is you go to a lot of Western, Western democracies or Western industrialized countries in different parts of the world and their citizens have lower crime rates and are safer than the United States is without the police state. And not only without the police state, don't spend nearly as much money on cops, prisons, and jails, and courts that we do. And they they don't have the massive police force. They don't have the massive prison population. They don't have the massive human rights violations that go along with it, yet they're safer. And very few people in the American political class, specifically like legislators, um, you know, governors, certainly the presidential uh, office of the White House and that, to be asking why is this and more importantly is is there something that we that we're missing out on here because i th- i think obviously we are and but there is no real definition of how this tough on crime translates into public safety what is any of this stuff doing that's going to make people safer that's actually going to have any type of accountability or transparency and, and the, the big thing is for the amount of money that we spend on the american police state Um, we should be getting better results. And no one's talking about, hey, maybe we should be getting more bang for the buck or maybe we should be getting um, some type of actual tangible result
1: uh, given the amount of money we spend on on prisons and jails in this country. That's actually a nice segue into the next uh, question. The former New York City jails commissioner wrote a piece for the Marshall Project this week saying that after 42 years in corrections – He has come to the conclusion that, quote, the Rikers Island jail complex reflects our nation's racist and destructive fixation on imprisonment, unquote. He says that Rikers is exhibit A for why we have to end mass incarceration. You and I both agree on that. But broader public opinion probably doesn't. Do you think there's a middle ground? And do you think it's possible or even conceivable that Congress might actually enact reform? Uh, so
5: far, anything coming out of Congress has been pretty negative. I mean, the, uh, the First Step Act uh, enacted by Congress and Trump uh, is literally, I think, the first piece of what I would call even remotely positive uh, criminal justice legislation to come out of Congress, um, probably in American history if not certainly at least the last 50 years and the fact that it was so modest so minor and so tepid um is kind of a searing indictment of the kind of the paralysis of you know of the federal of congress and the senate and, and the white house for that matter and it's um and i think that's the big thing is you know we we haven't seen uh, either the White House or Congress, either House of Congress, be a leader on anything approximating progressive anything, uh, whether it's uh, criminal justice reform or health care or much of anything, but certainly not on, um, you know, certainly not on, on the issue of, of criminal justice. So I wouldn't hold my breath on that. And, and I think one of the things, too, is that um, you think about um legislators. You can say, okay, Elizabeth Warren, she's all about, you know, holding banks accountable. Uh Charles Grassley, um he really likes whistleblowers and he's against government waste. Um, you know, you can go to almost every issue, you can go down a checklist and say, okay, there's at least someone in Congress that champions an issue. Okay, who champions progressive criminal justice reform in Congress? You know, I think that's kind of a there's a deafening silence there. And, I mean, there's plenty of people that are against it, but who's really for it? And, and I think this is the, the reality that we deal with, is you don't really have anyone uh, either with an alternative vision or an alternative idea other than a bloated police state feeding at the, at the public trough, locking up lots and lots of people year after year.
1: Paul, the Federal Bureau of Prisons recently got a new director. The BOP has been notoriously mismanaged for years maybe even decades. decades, this new director is the former director of the Oregon prison system. What can you tell us about her, and are you confident that she can enact positive change in the BOP, or is the system just too rotten to even allow for something like that?
5: Well, I think, first off, it depends on how long she's going to last as director. I mean, the BOP's had a lot of turnover um, in recent years, and I think this is also one of those things that I think it's a dramatic um Misreading, I think of bureaucratic organizations that think that one person is going to change an entire organization, and I think that more likely what we see is you know the organizations change the individuals that come in to lead them rather than the other way around and um you know it'll be interesting to see how long she lasts um, and i I think that's part of the problem and I think the other part of the problem too though is that to the extent that um Historically, the BOP has been pretty um, insulated. It's probably one of the most secretive of the federal of the federal agencies um, in the context that, you know, in terms of any outside scrutiny, like, when's the last time anyone in Congress actually held any type of, you know, any type of inquiry or investigation into the BOP? And, you know, you just don't see any type of accountability. I mean, one of the things i found, in all the decades I've been dealing with prison systems, is is a lot of state prison systems, there's usually some way of leverage with them, either whether it's through, you know, there might be a state legislature, there might be someone the governor's office. Uh, they're certainly responsive. A lot of them are also responsive to the media, not all of them. But the is, uh, with a couple other prison systems, is kind of almost unique in the sense that They don't seem to have any pressure points. They are literally pretty accountable to no one. And you don't see this in terms of, you know, who can get a response out of the BOP for anything. Maybe the White House can, but even then that's a little questionable because, um, you know, they they don't seem to have much in the way of any type of oversight, Certainly, even less when it comes to any type of accountability.
1: Can't disagree with that. Paul, two men falsely accused of murdering Malcolm X way back in 1965 were exonerated last year. And yesterday they came to an agreement with the government for compensation of $36 million. They had each spent just over 20 years in prison. How rare is an outcome like this? And why don't we see more news about exonerations and settlements?
5: Well, I think that part of the problem is, you know. As, as far as exoneration,s those are becoming incre- those have become increasingly common. I mean, that said, when you consider the fact that um, when you consider the fact that um, the United States convicts over a million people a year, I, I think unless you're really, really optimistic and think the government always gets it right, and you really think every single one of those million people was rightfully convicted of a crime that they actually committed. Um, you know, if you think that, then I don't know what to tell you. But, uh, but the reality is, is that uh, you know I'm not sure what the portion is. I've seen estimates that have ranged anywhere from up to one and two percent of people who are wrongfully convicted as in like factually innocent of the crime that they're convicted of, and you know the numbers could well be higher. And but the but part of the problem of the exonerations is even when you have people exonerated, compensation is far from a sure thing. Um, right now, for example, the, the Human Rights Defense Center, we're representing a man, uh, Robert Dubois, and he was wrongfully convicted of uh, raping and killing a woman. And he spent 37 years in prison, 12 of those years on death row for a crime he didn't commit. And he can not get any compensation from the state of Florida because he had a burglary. He would previously committed a burglary. And uh, the Florida legislature, like many others around the country, um, says to get any type of compensation, you can't have, um, you can't have a, any type of criminal conviction on your record. So even though he was wrongfully convicted, no one disputes the fact that he was wrongfully convicted of a crime, two crimes, rape and murder, that he did not commit. Everyone's like, well, you know, he doesn't get any type of compensation, so basically he's just out of luck. And so we're representing him uh, seeking the whole the police department that framed him, that fabricated evidence, and wrongfully convicted him uh, of the frame-up and the murder. But that's still kind of an uphill battle. And I think that's one of the things that we see. Even when people are um, convicted of crimes they did not commit, even when they're factually innocent, they serve these lengthy prison sentences, it's really an uphill battle and very difficult to hold the government accountable
1: and get these people compensation uh, for crimes they didn't commit. That was the voice of Paul Wright. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Paul is the managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News Magazines and executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after a short break.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou for another segment of There's Too Much to Talk About. (laughs) What can we choose? (laughs) We have Elon Musk in Twitter. We have tech stocks tanking. We have this uh, interesting report about the Department of Homeland Security trying to create profiles of everyone at Portland protests. Um, And I think we will start there. We're joined by technologist and co-host of the co Action Bulletin podcast, Chris Garafa. How are you doing, Chris?
6: Oh, it's a lot going on this week, Michelle, John, John. There's so much happening. So I'm (laughs) glad we were able to get some time to talk about it all.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's new stuff coming out from DHS already about surveillance that we won't have time to get into today. But this report. So I I gather that this came from uh, pressure from Senator Ron Wyden uh, on the DHS. So the DHS has released this unredacted version of a report on its actions following racial justice protests in Portland, Oregon in 2020. And this unredacted version of the report includes details uh, like the fact that the acting secretary of Homeland Security and his deputy requested operational background reports on every person who attended protests, which would have entailed intelligence dossiers on thousands of people. They were apparently trying to get at who was funding these protests. They did not end up doing that, uh, but they did create dossiers on people who were arrested for things that in many cases had nothing to do with Homeland Security. Uh, So these people had dossiers of their criminal history, travel history, social media, friends and family all put together because they uh, were arrested at a protest. Uh, What does this report tell us about how Donald Trump's Department of Homeland Security operated and also about the, the surveillance capabilities and intentions of the federal government?
6: Yeah, there's so much in this this one story, and we could probably spend the whole time talking about it. But yeah. uh, we got to get to Twitter eventually, I'm sure. So there was a lot happening, and this report was, in fact, uh, pushed to be further uh, unredacted and released. Um, yes, by um, by Senator Wyden. That's why you know we're talking particularly about Portland. If we remember, in the summer of 2020, during the national uprising. Portland was, you know, really in many ways a center of protest. There were protests every night of one form or another for uh, for months, you know, weeks on end, into a couple months. And the you know Department of Homeland Security was particularly brutal uh, in Portland against these demonstrations. They said, yeah, they wanted to figure out, you know, who was funding them. Um, you know, the, you know who's funding these demonstrations. And I think we need to be very clear, right? Yes, there were many organizations involved in these protests, not just in Portland, but around the country, but they wouldn't have happened, and it would not have been the scale that they, w- they happened at if it hadn't been for the, the work of just thousands of people who decided to come out on their own to get their friends to go out. This wasn't mm-hmm. because— one person said, let's go protest. So the idea, first of all, that DHS thought that it was just like, we're, we're going to get, you know, the head of Antifa and we're going to arrest right. the CEO of Antifa, you know, to yeah. go along with the joke. Right. You know, that uh, and that's going to put a stop to this was absolutely ridiculous. But also the idea that, you know, and, and let's be clear, this was Ken Cuccinelli and Chad Wolf, who at the time were respectively the acting dhs deputy, deputy secretary and the acting dhs secretary they wanted to create these baseball cards the obrs i mean it's a again it's a one page fact sheet that would just have some information about literally everyone at a protest you know whether just just because you showed up there um, and it seems, from what we understand from this report, that this particular department—and it's also important to understand that this this report that we're talking about is from one department within DHS, I and A. It's intelligence and analysis, the Office of Intelligence and Analysis Operations. Um, so apparently, they did not do that. That was uh, that was shut down. So they were, you know. Uh, they they did not actually accomplish that, as far as we know. But also, this is just one department and it's one city. Every state, every major city, certainly, many many smaller cities and towns had some form of protest during this this summer wide, nationwide uprising against racism. So I'm glad we're getting this. You know, very small. Uh, view into what happened in one of the cities that was most hardly hit by government repression during the protests, uh, but I wouldn't take it to mean that none of the things we're talking about here, you know, didn't happen elsewhere too.
0: There is some comedy in the report as well, right? There's a <laughs> picture the scene: DHS staff go into a Best Buy and buy up a bunch of laptops <laughs> so they can get more people working on more computers to form more dossiers to find out, yeah, if the uh, CEO of Antifa is funding these protests. So, I mean. I wonder if you feel like there's not as much concern about this as there should be. Uh, and I wanted to ask you if if you think people are becoming a little bit complacent when it comes to these kinds of uh, surveillance intrusions and why it's important for agencies to only create these kinds of dossiers on people if there is a very good reason.
6: I mean, I I would say that DHS thought there was a good reason, right? Mm -hmm. Because they were completely being, you know, the the entire system, the racist capitalist system was being threatened. So in DHS's mind, that's a perfectly valid reason. And Mm -hmm. I I certainly disagree with that, right? Like we were right to challenge the entire system and right to continue doing so, um, you know, that summer and every day. So, you know, what I, I think, you know, it's like when we say, oh, this is bad for national security you know, in whatever it is, right? The question is, whose national security? Is it, right? Is it, you know, me and you? Or is it like, you know, Jeff Bezos and, and you know, Donald Trump and, uh, you know, and, and other, you know, billionaires? Um, but I think, yeah, this is something that people are, I think, a little overwhelmed by how much surveillance there is. And I think in some ways that's intentional. But in some ways, I think it, it also shows that people understand the threats that come from the national security state and its partnerships with private, uh, you know, private companies that also are doing this, you know, this kind of surveillance work. So, you know, it's, it's not, we're not getting Snowden level drops, you know, every, every month anymore. And we used to at one point. Um, but I think now it's become not necessarily accepted, but it's become understood that yes, this is what they're doing. And that's another data point into the danger of this kind of technology in the hands of of this state.
0: All right. Moving on to Twitter. Uh, blue checks are going to have to pay for their validation, according to reports. There are layoffs coming. There was a whole drama over the weekend about printed code. And I think I want to start there because I keep seeing also these uh, things float past on social media, like if X keeps coming, you know, the Musk team won't be able to handle it and tw- Twitter will collapse. Is there anything technically happening at Twitter that your average user should be concerned about?
6: The one thing that we know that is happening right now, thanks to reports, um, as well, we're relatively sure, is that the Elon Musk gave, an, uh, gave a directive to every team at Twitter, basically, that could possibly be involved with this that said, uh, you know, Blue checks are going to have to pay a monthly fee in order to keep your blue check. You know, if you're a verified account, you're going to have to pay to keep it, which, first of all, is ridiculous. The you know, blue check should not be a status symbol. It's actually a, a way to protect yourself and your identity mm-hmm. on Twitter so that no one can create an account that's, you know, uh, pretending to be you. Mm-hmm. But implementing that kind of change within seven days, basically saying, do this within seven days or you lose your jobs to thousands of people implementing this within seven days at this scale it doesn't matter how many people you have working on it it's extremely dangerous somebody yeah. is going to miss something somewhere you're there's going to be bugs there's always bugs in software even when elon musk has nothing to do with it right things are buggy that's why you need time to test them you need time to do all of that that release and it's going to hit not just you know the website right but it's also going to hit the The Apple app, the Android app, you know, all sorts of other ways that we interact with Twitter, if it's done wrong, it could actually, you know, prevent us from using Twitter for a while um, because they have some sort of bug in that code. I mean, other than being an awful policy decision and like a complete money grab, right, from Twitter's perspective, um, it's just that's just bad engineering management. Um, But of course, what we heard was Musk has brought in engineers from Twitter to take a look through twitter's code and that's what you're referring to the printouts right mm-hmm. people were being told on friday on the twitter uh, slack workspace you know print out the code that you've worked on in the last you know 30 or 60 days and then they said oh no don't print it out cancel that go shred it on like the 10th <laughs> floor of the building or whatever it is so i guess you don't walk out with it yeah. um, you know it, it, these ridiculous things and i think a lot of it, there's a lot that is still to be understood about what is happening internally but the first thing you know certainly this change about the uh, the, the blue checks and just the way it's being done dangerous uh, also firing thousands of people which it seems like th- that could be what happens also extremely dangerous when you have a company uh where you're going to be bringing in this new team from tesla to be overseeing management which again is what it appears is happening uh, but, you know, no one has an understanding of how any of this stuff works, right? I mean, the internals of Twitter.
0: When you say dangerous, you mean dangerous in the sense that Twitter could become inoperable or dangerous in the sense that, uh, you know, d- data collected by Twitter will become very insecure. What what does dangerous mean?
6: Uh, in this particular instance, uh, I'm, I'm just referring to like the fact that Twitter could just stop working, mm-hmm. literally stop working. You mm-hmm. know, if there's an issue with this, Um, And for some reason, you know, there's some kind of bug. It could just stop working. Right. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to make this kind of change, global change at such a fast rate. Very just it's it's tough to do. It's tough to do. Um,
0: Well, I also want to talk about moderation. Right. A lot of the concerns when Elon Musk took over Twitter had to do with how content was going to be moderated. And unsurprisingly, uh, there were a bunch of reports over the weekend about a surge in hate speech. Uh, Twitter's head of safety and integrity said a surge in one particular a surge of use in one particular slur came from a bot network, which I also don't find uh, very surprising. Right. It does seem like because this was what was so much a part of the discourse about Elon Musk taking over Twitter, you know, a bunch of. Uh, you know, a bunch of losers with nothing better to do will come and say, like, let's see if I can say this bad word on Twitter. I don't know that a spike is the same as a, you know, ongoing, sustained environment of harassment and abuse. And so I wonder, you know, how seriously should we take these initial reports and then, you know, are, are these dire content uh, predictions coming to pass?
6: Yeah, that was Yoel Roth uh, who made that comment that there was, um, you know, there was a small 50,000 tweets from a small group of 300 accounts, which doesn't actually address the question of how many tweets were there with slurs in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was a very, you know, specific choice to remove, uh, you know, to not to, to not give that information, right? How many tweets overall were there? There's 50,000 from 300 accounts, sure, but what were we looking at? But yeah, I mean, the Network Contagion Research Institute um, on Thursday, on the 28th, right after the news came out, started monitoring uh, uses of, you know, a number of racial slurs uh, and ethnic slurs on Twitter and just found that, uh, for example, the use of the N-word had increased 500 percent. Over the last the first twelve hours of Musk's ownership of Twitter, uh, compared to the previous twelve hours, Mm -hmm. Um, and so whether or not it's a small number of bots or you know actual people, I think is actually relatively um, besides the point, Michelle. I think Mm -hmm. what we're looking at here is Elon Musk has come out, and if we can just look at the three and a half days and since he took power at Twitter, uh, what has he done and what has happened on the platform? I mean he he promoted yesterday this. Really bizarre and anti LGBTQ anti sex worker theory um, about the, um, oh, the about the Paul attack. Pelosi um, Paul was Pelosi. attacked by right. some
0: lover of his, yeah,
6: so some lover that he met at a club, uh, and it was from a known you know like right wing fringe news site, and he promoted that. He then uh, quote tweeted, or I'm sorry, took a picture of a headline from the New York Times. The, t- the headline says. Elon Musk, in a tweet, shares a link from site known to publish false news. And Musk comments on this and said, this is fake. I did not tweet out a link to the New York Times. This is, I mean, Donald Trump level, you know, stuff here, right? Mm. And I think that's the important thing when we're looking at this. Elon Musk is, is in many ways, the Donald Trump of you know business uh you know it's not that people don't like what he does it's that he they don't like what that he's saying it so loudly that he's you know threatening the advertising income he's threatening uh he just got rid of the board by the way breaking news just mm-hmm. got rid of the board of twitter just about uh, half an hour ago so that's what they don't like it's the way he's going about these things and the way he's saying it uh not necessarily the things he's he's actually you know doing to the company
0: mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, it also is, you know, again, it's like on one hand, I don't know. I, my level of use of Twitter is such that it will not probably change for me unless, you know, it's impossible to know where information comes from at some point. But, you know, a lot of the concern that Musk partnered with the Kingdom Holding Company to fund the purchase, you know, is that the Kingdom Holding Company, Saudi Arabia's, uh, you know, sort of state holding company hadn't already been a stakeholder, you know, it it feels like Twitter has gone from being publicly owned by a bunch of uh, wealthy bad guys to being privately owned by a smaller group of also baddies. And it feels like there's probably a more serious change to be sought here, right? From, you know, uh, publicly held by a bunch of the wealthiest criminals, uh, you know, in the world to privately held by basically similar people.
6: Yeah, and I, I really dislike the terminology publicly held, you know, when it's really like you have to be wealthy to, to own enough stock right. to actually make a difference, right? Exactly. I mean,
0: um,
6: but I certainly, yes, he did take the stock private. Uh, I actually reflexively went to look up the stock price this morning and had to remind myself that it doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, because when we're looking, I think when we're looking at Twitter, when we're looking at a lot of these networks, a lot of these platforms, this and these actions, I think, really show... What a crisis! Private ownership of these popular mass communication tools actually means. Twitter should be nationalized. Twitter should be taken over and put under public control. And by public, of course, I mean like us, the people who use it, the people who make it run. Uh, not by you know Elon Musk, not by Jack Dorsey, not by some board of directors that's now gone. But really, for the good of the of all of us who use it and make it. It should be run by us, and not for a profit, not at a twenty dollar a month or ten dollar a month you know fee to to have your blue check mark, but really in such a way that recognizes what has happened with not just Facebook but Twitter, Reddit, and all of these other ones, you know how much we've come to rely on them every day, day mm-hmm. in and day out, uh, you know certainly during a pandemic uh, but also well well before that, so I think you know really we should be talking about public ownership is is the solution for this, but public in terms of it is a nationalized company and it is run transparently mm-hmm. by the people who are actually impacted by it.
0: Yeah. this was a, There was a line from a Washington Post story about uh, Musk takeover and, you know, what's been going on uh, over the past couple of days. And the Washington Post, uh, the author of the story writes, Historically, social media company owners such as Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg have tried to avoid controversial public opinions because they don't want to be perceived as putting their thumb on the scale of the algorithms that govern public expression. And that just to me is so much to raise eyebrows in there. One, because they don't want to be perceived as putting their thumb on the scale, which sort of leaves open uh, is some room behind the perception of what is actually happening. But just the idea of the The algorithms that govern public expression, this is sounding to me a little bit like the market, which is presented as this neutral thing, you know, that crawled out of a cave somewhere that, you know, human beings definitely did not create that has the right and indeed the duty to regulate public expression or regulate economic activity. And I I wondered if anything about that sentence uh, gave you pause.
6: I I think it was extremely telling to, to have it phrased in that way in the in the Washington Post in particular. I mean, it's true. You know, Zuckerberg, especially over the past few years, really since 2017 or so, you know, has tried to, to back off and say, you know, it's, it's, it's the, you know, it's the algorithm, but we're make, we're working to make it better. We're working to make Facebook a safer place. We've got neighborhoods and groups and all of those things. Don't pay attention to all the information we're giving to advertisers and, and all of that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, like I said earlier, Musk has really turned that on his head, on its head very much again, like Donald Trump did during his campaign uh, and, you know, during his presidency, um, you know, he's really, he's being the loud one, right? He's, he's out there saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, I think, again, the danger here, um, in terms of, you know, what is going to happen with moderation on, on Twitter? I mean, we don't know. Musk has really just said that there's going to be no decisions made until a community moderation system or board can be instituted that has, uh, I think his words were a wide, you know, variety of viewpoints, which, I mean, of course, like that sounds great, Uh, In theory, but that's actually terrifying considering what we've already seen be promoted and really come to the top on Twitter from the people who are most supporting Musk's takeover and his supposed free speech positions, right? This racist, sexist, just awful stuff that we have been seeing from Uh, you know, from his from his supporters. So the idea of having a, you know, a a community council uh, to make moderation decisions or moderation policy, you know, it's not like, oh, you and your neighbor who disagree on, you know, something, you know, minor. It's, you know, his idea is that every position from don't kill me to kill me like genocide, right, is going to be welcome. That's what we're getting out of this. That's what we're seeing from this.
0: Chris Garafa, always great to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what are you working on on the covered Action Bulletin this week?
6: Well, we've got some great stuff coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking actually more about the chaos of social media this week on our episode that comes out on Wednesday morning with uh, it'll be with journalist Alan McLeod from uh, Mint Press News and a number of other places.
0: Oh, cool. Oh, Alan McLeod. I think he's great. All right. Well, enjoy that. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, Chris.
6: All right. Take care. Thank
0: you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with a few last headlines. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty. I'm here with John Kiriaku. John, I want to talk to you about what is happening in Israel as Israel also prepares for a God knows what election this is since 2019. <laughs> but I was, right. you know, have you seen that the um, the San Francisco uh, DA has been saying. Uh, since earlier this weekend, that there wasn't a third person in the Pelosi house. Um, Right. So I don't know if that, I mean, certainly that was reported initially, but it Mm. definitely is also something that uh, the DA is coming out and saying, no, I don't know how that was reported. There wasn't anybody else there. So I don't know. I don't know how much longer that's going to go on. Or, you know, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know what's happening, but it seemed like I wasn't sure if it was, clear that they had formally uh, refuted that in our conversation earlier and wanted to make sure we got it in there.
1: Excellent. Yeah, Yeah. I think this is I I use the term burning itself out. I think this will burn itself out uh, right after the election.
0: I mean, it is, you know, it is a terrible thing. It is. The guy's 82 years old. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think he's a, I think he's a scumbag. I think his wife's a scumbag, but I yeah. don't think he's breaking his house and hit him with a hammer. And I do think there's, you know, I do wonder about the like level of, I don't know, level of sort of personal, personal demonization of, of people sometimes. Although right. also they're personally, you know, it's bad, right? I mean, cause you could probably yeah. accuse me of doing the same thing. Cause there are, you know, there are villains, right? In our system and to some,
1: you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene said what day before yesterday that she's been swatted now more than a dozen times, Mm -hmm. more than a dozen times. The police have shown up at her house uh, for a report of shots fired in the middle of the night and a dozen times. It's turned out to be false.
0: I'm going to I'm going to, you know, predict that the real takeaway from here is that, uh, you know, people have been allowed to just lose their minds without any. Uh, intervention without really the the possibility of of care and people are also incredibly angry and frustrated for good reasons and for bad reasons and these are the i would say entirely inappropriate manifestations of of that frustration and anger not only inappropriate because you know they're wrong but inappropriate because they don't serve they don't do the thing you want them to do they don't help you achieve the result that you want to achieve you know that's what I'm going to yes. guess should be the real uh takeaway from from those two situations, right? Agreed anyway yeah anyway, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Go on, John, what's happening in Israel?
1: Well, you know, I mentioned on um on fault lines this morning that one of the things that's really struck me is the is the lack of political advertising. This election is going to be held tomorrow. And the only political advertising I've seen has been for the most extreme right-wing candidates. There's one candidate. Oh, so uh, the Democrats are funding it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. There's one candidate who a year ago, Benjamin Netanyahu called a terrorist, um, who has on multiple occasions pulled out a pistol out of his jacket and pointed it at Palestinians just walking down the street this guy's probably going to win five or six seats, and Benjamin Netanyahu, according to today's news, is is willing to try to form a government with him. So here's the way things are: uh, the Knesset has 120 members. You need 61 to form a, a government. No party can get 61 on its own. It's just not possible. There are more than three dozen parties. Um, between eight and twelve of them will eventually be represented uh, represented in the Knesset, and so whatever the next government is, it's going to have to be just like the last four governments, a coalition. Mm-hmm. As things stand now, the polls here are very, very close. It could take weeks before we know if there's going to be a government in Israel, and um, and right now the pundits are saying that uh, that Netanyahu has the edge. He has the edge only because the entire body politic here has moved decidedly to the right, and I mean to the right of Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. I I mentioned on Fault Lines uh, also this morning that much of this is attributable to the influx of Russian Jews over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. You know, where Israel had a government that was dominated by socialists and Mm -hmm. and was ruled by socialists for decades, Um, those socialists are a non-factor now. And now the farther right, the far, the more hard line that you can be on things like settlements or religious education, the more likely you are to win a seat in parliament.
0: And you think at some point Israelis will just want a government that is able to function for a period of time yeah. lasting longer than a few months, right? You would think. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah.
1: But it gives you an idea of just how— how stovepiped people are in their, in their personal ideologies. You know, you look at the, the, uh, the Jerusalem post yesterday had an article. Let me, let me see if I can pull it up here. Had an article entitled Israeli elections, which parties are running and what are their policies? These parties don't agree on anything. I mean, they have like wildly differing views Mm -hmm. of what they want Israel to be. Mm -hmm. And then there are multiple Arab parties Arab Israelis, you know, Arabs who happen to be Israeli citizens. Now, I I heard a commentary today on one of the Israeli uh, TV stations that um, 20 percent of the electorate are Israeli Arabs. But most of them are so angry and so frustrated that they just stay home. Well, in the last – Coalition government, they were able to win something like six seats in the Knesset, and they threw their support to Benny Gantz and what was then called the Blue and White Party. Um, it's it's changed its name because it merged with another left of center party. Um, but the reason why we really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow is because nobody can gauge what the outcome is going to be for the for the Arabs. Are they just going to stay home or are they going to come out and vote, like hold their noses and vote? We don't know.
0: And I don't know. This does seem to be the story of a lot of recent elections of just just uh, understanding that your polls cannot be seen as reliable. I mean, we saw that with Brazil uh, just on Sunday. Right. We saw that, of course, with the election of Donald Trump. Who knows what the midterms are going to bring here? Um, And so, yeah, it does seem as though it has become harder to sort of accurately understand what people, both what people want and also what they are willing to put their weight behind, which is not necessarily right. exactly the same thing.
1: That's yeah. exactly right. That's why it's just one giant question mark. But like I said, I, I, I mean, I've only been here, what, a, a day and a couple of hours, but I've been out and about, I got, I got my 10,000 steps before nine o'clock this morning. Yeah. So I'm, I'm out there, you know, trying to pound the pavement, Yeah, I've not seen a single ad, not a single photograph or banner for Benjamin Netanyahu, or for that matter, for Benny Gantz. Yeah. All I'm seeing is advertising for the most extremist parties. It's shocking.
0: It also, I just feel like it seems so strange to go through an entire show with barely a mention of the tragedy that happened in South Korea on Saturday. It's just, you know, it is one of those things where there's not a lot to... You know, 154 people were killed, the the majority of them in their 20s and 30s. And it just seems like, obviously, this was a a failure to to anticipate what was going to happen and to uh, figure out a way to manage these crowds better. You know, this is something for the South Korean government to... To to reckon with, including, I guess, this revelation that the South Korean police like didn't they didn't have a plan for a a crowd situation like this that didn't have some kind of instigating factor. You know what I mean? This is one of the things that's come out of it, which certainly now uh, seems like an oversight. But it's just, you know, there are there are tragedies with uh, that provide, you know, a lot of. uh, room for analysis. And this doesn't really feel like one of them from a distance, but yeah, certainly like yeah. uh, the scale of it, I felt like needs some comment, right?
1: I, I have to agree. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And, you know, you you made a good point a minute ago, too, when you said that what we're seeing in Israel is reflective of what we're seeing elsewhere. We saw it yesterday in Brazil. We'll likely see it on Tuesday in the United States. We saw it in the U.K. a week or two ago,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, electorates all around the world are polarized and divided, and we're just in a tough time right now.
0: We really are. It really does. Like, sometimes it, it hits you that we really are. I mean, again, the idea uh, of somebody—I don't know. You, you Like, you can't not talk about challenging or difficult stories because insane people will latch on to them, right? But it right. does, you know, you you can't then, uh, you know, shave all the, pair all the sharp edges off of your understanding of the world or the di- your your discussions about it. But something, I don't know, something just feels like it's gone very wrong recently. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Anyway, we'll be totally back tomorrow agree. trying to figure out what that thing is. But in the meantime, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks to everyone who joined us today. Thanks, as always, to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriaku and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.